It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio KCAW Sitka. Today is Tuesday, October 25th, 2022. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. When the Sitka Assembly meets tonight, it will appoint a new Assembly member to fill the seat Dave Miller vacated earlier this month. Four applicants threw their hats in the ring for the role. Former Assembly members Richard Wien and Ben Miyasato, Carol Voisin, and Timothy Pike. Whomever the Assembly picks will serve in the role for a year. Then next October, voters will decide who will serve the last year of Miller's term. Once the Assembly picks an applicant, if they're present, they'll be sworn in immediately. The new Assembly member will serve in the role until the municipal election next October. Then voters will decide who will serve the last year in Miller's seat. In other business, the Assembly will consider several commission appointments, financial appropriations, and affirm October is Filipino-American History Month. The Sitka Assembly meets tonight at 6 p.m. Raven News will broadcast the meeting live following Alaska News Nightly. Voting for this year's midterm elections started Monday at city halls, community centers, churches, and election offices all over Alaska. Voters will rank their favorite candidates for governor, U.S. House and Senate, and state House and Senate. They'll also vote on a once-a-decade question about whether to hold a constitutional convention, plus whether judges on state courts should continue to hold their jobs. Registered voters must bring some form of ID to the polls. That can be a driver's license, state ID card, passport, birth certificate, military ID, or a hunting or fishing license. Alternatively, voters can provide a utility bill, bank statement, paycheck, or a government document with their name and current address. In most communities, early voting is known as absentee in-person voting. In Sitka, early voting is available at Harrigan Centennial Hall from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. In Angoon, early voting takes place at the Angoon City Clerk's Office Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. In Cake, early voting is open 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday at the Cake City Clerk's Office. Yakutat voters can cast early ballots at Yakutat Borough Clerk's Office from 9 a.m. to noon and 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. In Tenneke, you can cast an early ballot at the Tenneke Springs Clerk's Office Monday through Wednesday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. In Pelican, cast an early ballot at the Pelican City Clerk's Office 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. In Port Alexander, you can cast an early ballot on Mondays, October 31st and November 7th, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., and Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, November 1st through 3rd, noon to 1 p.m. at the Port Alexander City Clerk's Office. The Alaska Division of Elections doesn't list an early voting location for Elfin Cove. However, any Alaskan can vote by mail. Voters can apply for a mail-in ballot at absenteeballotapplication.alaska.gov through Saturday, October 29th. Absentee ballots must be postmarked by November 8th. Petersburg Search and Rescue Team located a missing hiker over the weekend. The man was in good health, but lost for over 20 hours. KFSK's Rachel Cassandra has more. The Search and Rescue Team found the lost man Sunday night. They aren't releasing his name. Bjorn Stolpe is the lieutenant of the Petersburg Fire Department. We could definitely hear that it was somebody, you know, yelling out to us. And so we just closed the gap pretty quick and and he was just hanging out in a little open section uh, of the woods. Patrick Fowler learned of the missing person Saturday around 5.30 p.m. He's the captain of the search and rescue team. He told me the man was hiking off trail. Uh, They weren't very familiar with the area, but they had been instructed by their their family member to uh, go up into the muskeg and kind of make a loop and come back to the road where they'd pick him up. 
The hiker was six hours overdue when search and rescue showed up. Fowler said they continuously made sounds to try to get the hiker's attention, which is a typical approach. One of our best tools is using sound attraction, where we're uh, either yelling or blowing whistles, or even last night um, firing a, a couple of gunshots, um, using uh, horns and sirens on the roadways, things like that's going to attract attention um, and get that person to respond back to us. The search was led by Fowler and the fire department. The Petersburg Police Department and the U.S. Forest Service also helped. There were 16 people working Saturday evening, including a few civilian volunteers. The Coast Guard launched a search helicopter from Sitka. The Petersburg Police Department also launched a drone, but the weather interfered with the drone's work. Ultimately, the search team worked almost six hours without finding anything. They stopped their search around 1.30 in the morning. Staying up all night is really just not an effective use of our resources. We're better off to take a break and be fully staffed at first light. The team met at 6.30 Sunday morning to talk strategy. They received a weather forecast from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Uh, so we had a, a pretty detailed forecast, which, which basically said, yeah, it's going to be, be real bad. <laughs> um, we're looking to sustain 30-knot winds, gust to 50, um, you know, rain. They prepared the team, starting with good rain gear. And they knew they'd need their trailer available for respite. So that, that's where we moved uh, the, the trailer down there to you know, facilitate a hot lunch and have at least a, a small pocket of space that folks could get out of the weather. On Sunday, the team looked for about three hours before they found the hiker. Stolpe and Sam Collum first found him. Here's Stolpe. He was, uh, he was alert, responsive, and uh, mobile, which is, you know, kind of the three big things that we're checking for when we, uh, when we find somebody. You know, we want to make sure that they don't have any uh, substantial injuries. So uh, he, was, he was standing up, and he was communicating with us uh, pretty, pretty decent. You know, he was definitely, you know, very cold, and his, uh, you know, his nerves were pretty shot. He was pretty, pretty shaky but uh, he was definitely very, very excited to see us. <laughs> Fowler described the location of the man. He was found kind of basically at the edge of a, that clear cut that is off of Forest Service Road 6222. The man's health seemed okay. He was able to walk out of the woods with help. When he got to the trailer, he drank, ate, and warmed up. Then the team brought him back to his family. Additional reinforcements from Juno Mountain Rescue showed up just as the man was found. Juno Sea Dogs was also planning to send dogs. Reporting in Petersburg, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Access to traditional foods has long been a priority for Ketchikan's federally recognized tribe. But for decades, Ketchikan residents have been barred from taking part in federal subsistence hunts and fisheries. Now, Ketchikan Indian community is pushing to change that. And as KRBD's Regan Miller reports, it hinges on one big question. Is Ketchikan a rural community? Trixie Bennett, the president of Ketchikan's tribe, says the push to designate Ketchikan as a rural community is a major step towards the tribe's goal of food sovereignty. Our food is our way of life. Uh, our food is the medicine. Our culture is the medicine. If Ketchikan was classified as rural, all residents, native and non-native, would be federally qualified subsistence hunters. That means they'd be able to hunt and fish on federal lands and harvest subsistence species like Uligan from the Unuk River. And wildlife officials would be required to prioritize the needs of Ketchikan subsistence users over commercial and sport fishermen. We want... Um, just better access to our healthier foods around here, not just for us, but for everyone on the island. 
She says traditional foods like deer and fish are high in protein and that indigenous people have been living off the land since time immemorial. But there's a reason that we, you know, persevered and we are so resilient and, I, and a lot of that has to do with your food system. But what does it mean to be designated as a rural community? Matthew Newman from the Native American Rights Fund says that's decided by the Federal Subsistence Board. It, it is the definition by which you know, subsistence rights are either offered or denied. Uh, but no one can come to a universal agreement as to what the term rural community means. If an area is considered rural by the board, it means more subsistence rights, like those outlined in Title Eight of the Alaska National Interests Lands Conservation Act. In this instance, you also have, as a rural resident, you have the opportunity to hunt or fish under federal rules. But Newman says there's no precise definition of what the board sees as rural. As of now, Ketchikan is listed as non-rural, along with Juneau, Fairbanks, the Matanuska, Susitna Borough, Anchorage, and the Kenai Peninsula. Notably, the community of Saxman, which lies within Ketchikan's borough and is connected to its road system, is considered rural by the board. It's, it's only by Alaska standards when anyone look at Ketchikan and say, well, that's not that rural. In practice, redesignating Ketchikan as a rural community would allow residents to hunt and fish on more land and waters and increase bag limits. But on Prince of Wales Island, where there's widespread concern about deer populations, some aren't so sure opening the island to more hunting and fishing is a good idea. Earlier this month, wildlife and conservation agencies held a three-day summit to discuss the problems facing the island's dwindling deer population. Clinton Cook is the president of the Craig Tribal Association, but he spoke to KRED in his personal capacity. Cook says he believes all small communities have a right to the designation, but he's not sure now is the right time. So I think adding 10 more thousand people to the queue might not be what is best right now, especially with diminished salmon populations, diminished deer populations. Cook doesn't think Ketchikan's tribe should stop pushing their request, but he says he wishes Prince of Wales Island tribes had been more evolved in the request. They should have been face-to-face with tribes on Prince of Wales and communities on Prince of Wales. He says he's having a meeting with Ketchikan's tribe on the topic soon. Bennett, the president of Ketchikan's tribe, says Ketchikan hunters and anglers would still have to follow special guidelines depending on the status of the population at the time. And federal regulations mandate that if there aren't enough deer on Prince of Wales Island to feed out-of-town hunters, local residents would get priority. Ketchikan Indian Community's request faces its first test in the coming days as the Southeast Regional Subsistence Advisory Council meets in Ketchikan. But it'll be a while before any changes take effect. Bennett says it could take as long as three years to complete the process. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News. Mm-hmm.